reading from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The word of the Lord. It's a prayer. Sing it as a prayer. Here I stand, I am surrender. I need you. This is talking about surrender. If you feel like it, just put your hands up and surrender. You can do it real low if you want. You can do it real high if you want. But just surrender right now. Just surrender. Here I stand. stand there let's pray right now keep uh keep that phrase in your mind here i stand i surrender father we are grateful today to you to bring us together in this place here at the bmi down in the baltimore harbor it's so beautiful lord online our beautiful congregation that is watching online father we're just grateful for the entire church not only here in baltimore but around the globe meeting in Africa, meeting in Ukraine, meeting in Russia, meeting in Central America, in our brothers and sisters in Managua right now, the entire church worldwide meeting today to offer thanks, worship, praise, and petition to you. We are part of a vast community, Lord, that understands what brokenness is and what your forgiveness and restoration means. Father, we surrender to that. You are a great God. You are not a distant God. You are right here in our midst, in all of our midst. And we are grateful. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Let all the people say amen. amen. Say amen online too. And you may be seated in his presence. Thank you, worship team. That was a wonderful setup to our new series today. That uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know where we're headed with this new series. It's so exciting to me. We have six weeks. We've been in the Gospel of John since uh, January with very high theology, very deep exegesis, and we're going to do a series uh, coming up now that, uh, well, I'll keep the title away for just a minute, but, uh, but you, may, you may know it already if you've been seeing us online. 
Open your Bibles today to Jeremiah chapter 31. Open your phones to Jeremiah 31. Open them at home. Keep them with you. And also, I want to tell you at home, have your communion elements ready because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Sunday on this first Sunday of May. So, and your communion elements at home can be, can be wine and bread. They can be grape juice and, and crackers. They can be water and cookies. Uh, but uh, you, are, you are good. But uh, have those elements ready when we proceed that way this morning. Jamon, I in seminary, I studied under a renowned professor of theology. He was a lover of books, a bibliophile, uh, who was already late in his career when I arrived his first year at Gordon-Conwell. Roger Nicole's library, and you can, you can Google Roger Nicole, and you'll find out a lot about him, but very, very famous theologian. Roger Nicole's library was massive, and today over 20,000 volumes of his, just his theological collection can be found at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Now, Roger was uh, quite famous in his field by the time I met him. As a matter of fact, I'm quite sure he was the oldest member of the seminary community, and I was the youngest first year. Uh, But I remember the moment that I became starstruck by Dr. Nicole. A collection of medieval manuscripts had arrived at Gordon-Conwell, photographed medieval manuscripts, And I stood by Professor Nicole as we thumbed through the pages of these ancient medieval manuscripts, 13th, 14th century. And I remember him saying in his Frenchish English that he had, uh, he said, I know this monk, as he looked at a page. And in his hand was a copy of a manuscript in Old French, uh, a page from the Psalms. And from, from the handwriting Dr. Nicole could tell which 13th century monk had copied that passage by hand, just from the handwriting. He'd seen the man's work before. It had a distinctive flair, and the monk had even left something, a note in the margin that's something to the effect of how cold and tired he was uh, wherever he was copying this in whatever medieval castle, and it's a clue to working in the Middle Ages. Who's grateful for climate control in this world today? But it amazed me to witness such fluency, not only with the language, he was fluent in Old French, but with the handwriting itself. Can you imagine being that fluent? Now, church, we see God's penmanship all around us in creation, and it's not hard at all to grasp that metaphor. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, never lose, watch this, never lose an opportunity for seeing anything that is beautiful. For beauty is God's handwriting. Does that make sense? And and the truth of that remains discoverable every day that we wake up and look out the window. Look at everybody, just look out at the harbor for a minute. Just look out. I mean, this is one of the best venues I can imagine for a church. We're going to be outdoors, by the way, the rest of the summer, staring at that beautiful view. So just take a moment and decide what is beautiful out there to you. And it can be the sky, it can be the clouds, it can be the the reflection off the water, it can be the children and the parents running around, it can be the the marketplace working over here, but all of it. It can be the city buildings, it can be the the kind of old-looking ships or the new-looking yachts, it can be all of that, right? This is God's penmanship all around us. And listen, you should know that in addition to God's penmanship around us in creation, The Bible portrays God as a writer as well as a speaker. Did you know that? He's a writer as well as a speaker. And you can learn 
a lot. I want to posit this to you today. Over the next six weeks, you can learn a lot about a person by paying attention to the way they dot their I's and cross their T's, Jamon, like the monk. We can say, as we study these passages where God is a writer, we will be able to say, I know this God because I know his handwriting. And there's going to be notes in the margins for us. So for the next six weeks in our series, God's Handwriting, somebody say God's Handwriting, we will survey the various pages where God chooses to write. And our goal is twofold. One is to grasp the ever deeper ways uh, that the magnificent love of our Father in heaven, that he, the love that he has for us. And then number two, to grow our own capacity to mirror that same love in our human relationships. After all, Paul argues in his epistle to the Ephesians that we, point to yourself for a minute, we are the text of God's handwriting, his personal writing. Here it is in verse 10, the first part of verse 10 in Ephesians. For we are God's, now we often translate this in your Bibles, it'll probably be translated some, something with a word like handiwork. We are God's handiwork. But the literal word that we translate different because it doesn't make as much sense, it's much more uh, amorphous to us, but the literal word here is the Greek poema. We are God's poem. We are God's poetry. Point to yourself and say, I'm God's poetry. And, and Philip Yancey once took this and said this about God's handwriting. Composing words on paper is one thing, but creating sacred works of art out of human beings is quite another. So when you look around this room, church, when you look around at, at home, at your family, at your roommates, when you look out at the harbor and you see these families running around out here and these singles and, the, and all the various people, do you see God's poetry? Because that's the way God sees us. Do you look at the beauty of the people or do you see something that, that is threatening? What, what does that look like to you? With all this in mind, we will begin our series this week with Writing on human hearts. Writing on human hearts. This week, we're going to look at Jeremiah's prophetic poetry, his prophetic prophecy regarding the handwriting of God on our hearts. Next week, we'll look at the Apostle Paul as he brings a different take on the very same idea of God writing on our hearts. The central idea here this morning that we heard James read is in verse 33. Here it is again. Listen. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law... All right, let me begin again. It's fair to say, not the whole thing, I'm not going back. <laughs> You're all like, oh, not again. It's fair to say that Jeremiah is the prophet, as we sang this morning, he's the prophet of the heart. If I had one word to sum up the, the, uh, the whole entire long, long book of Jeremiah, and that's always a little fraught when you try to sum up a book with one word, but I would sum it up with this word, heart. And in this poetic verse that uh, James read this morning in chapter 31, it's the admission and we sang about this too, but it's the admission, church, of brokenness in the old covenant, which permits the prophet to anticipate here a new covenant. Somebody say new. A new beginning, a new relational possibility with our creator and with one another. Look at verse 32 again. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, he says, because they broke 
that covenant. He's talking about the old covenant of Sinai, which will actually come up in this series a little bit later. Jamon will be preaching that sermon. Now, here's the, here's the context. The time is 587 B.C. It's roughly 600 years before the birth of Christ, and our text is situated in a season of failure for the people of Israel, for ancient Israel and Judah. The city of Jerusalem has been conquered and burned. The temple has been destroyed. The monarchy has been terminated, and the leading citizens have been deported into exile. And this all comes about as a result of centuries-old uh, refusal by, by the people of Israel, by the people of God, refusal of the commandments of Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and the, and the entire law. Now, Israel had not grounded its life in the God of the Exodus. It had not taken justice seriously, so the covenant had been broken. So in verses 33 to 34, Jeremiah anticipates three interconnected and on going divine action items toward a new beginning, a new covenant composed by God on our hearts, leading ultimately to Jesus Christ in order, in order, why is he doing this? To interrupt our partiality for self-indulgent, self-sufficient living that leads to ruin. So here he's going to forge something new, he's going to form something else, and then he's going to forget something old. So stay with me, and first we look at this. God will forge, forge something new. Somebody say forge. All of us know what it's like to have one of those days or weeks or pandemic years or multiple years when it seems like nothing is going in your favor. Raise your hand if you know what that's like, where nothing seems to be going in your... Nobody's raising... Come on, raise your hand if you know what that's like. All right, don't play with me here. We know this. And then, in the middle of your misery, it, it just always seems to happen. There's that one person, Jamon, who walks up to you, pats you on the back, and says, well, remember, just remember that God is faithful. And you want to smack him. Because you, you're saying, have you looked at my life? Have you listened to anything I just said? Do you, do you hear anything, what I'm telling you? Well, that annoying guy has a, has a name this morning, and his nameling is Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah wants his people to remember that even in their greatest despair, and this is it, this time in Israel's history, God's faithfulness remains intact. And we just sang it, didn't we? And I heard the Spirit of God moving as we sang it because it, it just feels like a fit. Despite our unfaithfulness toward God and our violence toward one another and creation, it doesn't seem like a realistic time to be speaking of the nearness of God, but here it is again. Take a look again at verse 33. This is our focus. This is the covenant I will make now with the people of Israel after that time. After that time is after exile, which is coming soon. It's the time coming in Jesus. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. That's how good our God really is. This week I, I had a phone call uh, requested, and somebody uh, put me onto this phone with an old friend, and he was in great despair. And he said, I just need to talk, and please put on your pastor, he's an old friend, but he said, please put on your pastor lens, your pastor hat, because I need a pastor right now. And this friend said, you know, I just, and this friend suffers from depression, and he said, I am so low that I just told God I'm I don't, want, I don't think I believe in you anymore. I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of my life. This is too hard. Just go. Get out. And now I'm sitting here thinking I'm going to hell. 
what will, have I blown it with God, was his question. And you just hear him crying on the phone. And I was able to say to him, in the entire context of scripture, including this text we're in today, you're, you're writing your own psalm right now. You, you're a part of a legacy of the heroes of the faith who have lost their faith and then said, God, forgive me. God, I need you. God, I'm sorry. God is, not only is he not rejecting you right now, he's closer than ever because he's always on the side of the hurting. He's always on the side of the marginalized. He's always on the side of those who are broken. And there was this great sigh of relief. This is the, you know, this is the three-minute counseling time. This great sigh of relief. And I've heard again from him saying how much, how his week has turned around as a result. But this is the word we get to give to each other, isn't it? In the same way here, Grace City, in spite of our old brokenness, the brokenness that we bring, the new covenant granted by God here prescribes an unthinkable foundation for what he calls my Torah. He calls it my law, my, my Torah. There's this sense here in the text of inhaling, inha in the original language, the sense of inhaling God's law, where the law of God, the Torah, will no longer be, be imposed by external authority, but rather inhaled in the human soul. That's a huge difference. And if you look carefully at God's handwriting here, Jeremiah doesn't say that God has already written the covenant on our hearts, but, in the, but instead that God wants to, intends to, and will continue to do so, to write it on our hearts. Look at verse 31 with me. Here it is. The days are coming, declares the Lord. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. The days are surely coming, Grace City. Jeremiah says they're on their way. And we are leaning into them. And it would serve us well to start living with God resident in our hearts because his heart's desire is to engrave himself on our hearts. His heart's desire is to engrave himself on our hearts. Now, of course, this Torah, this God's law, is a tradition of agreement with and obedience to the expectations of God, right? And we need to ask this morning, what does that look like in practice? When we get up and go out of this place, what does it look like to have God's law increasingly, constantly, consistently written on our hearts? What does that look like? And, and when God's law is being composed on our hearts, when it's being inhaled in our lungs. Let me share something I noticed about Corey Barnes, my co-pastor. Uh, and, and, you know, he's not in the room. He's on sabbatical, so I can share anything I want. Is that the way that works? But let me share something I noticed about Corey almost 20 years ago when we first met, long before Grace City started, when we were doing some projects and worked together in the city. And uh, here's what I noticed about Corey Barnes. Early on in his faith, Corey Barnes carved out an internal habit of memorizing scripture and verses of his favorite songs, uh, Paula, right, you know. And I noticed, and you've probably noticed this too if you've been with us long enough, because he did it just a couple weeks ago in his final sermon before sabbatical. I noticed that every time we were visiting someone in a hospital room, every time we were driving up the driveway of a, a father and husband who had just passed away and we were about to meet with the family, every time there was, we were involved uh, serving, uh, uh, doing a funeral in a funeral wake, or even at the end of a sermon when the Spirit wanted free reign, and we heard this just a few weeks ago, Corey Barnes would breathe those reminders from the scripture, from the songs, 
He would repeat them to himself, and I could hear them because I was always right next to him. And then when needed, when appropriate, when most valuable, he would breathe it out on anyone to hear in those scenarios. And it would come constantly, and it would come beautifully, and it was his heart of hearts being expressed. They were not written on little slips of paper, are they, Paula? They're written on his heart, ready to be delivered, watch this, for the sake of others in greatest despair, in greatest need. And Grace City, I'm not even selling some, some version of memorization for the sake of memorization. That's not what I'm giving that story about. When God's law is being composed in our hearts, it will show up most often in a life lived toward our neighbor, toward the other. In Jeremiah's world, and all too often in our world today, Brendan, it's clear that we've forgotten what it's about to be a neighbor in God's economy. We've forgotten. Left to our own devices, we are today very much like ancient Israel, aren't we? We, we're on a binge of narcissistic self-indulgence, and you see it all over the place. But it's not hard for the people of God to understand that in God's economy, sustainable community requires consideration of the neighbor. It requires embrace of the neighbor. Otherwise, community is always on the edge of brokenness. Here we have a foreshadowing, don't we, of Christ's interaction with the Pharisees. These were the keepers of the law. They had the Torah memorized, and they were rigid interpreters and practicers of it. But Christ showed us in his interaction that, that the Torah being written on our hearts is not about a narrow moralism. Christ would heal on the Sabbath and then take on the Pharisees and said, Why aren't you? Because they said it was against the law. And Christ took them on. He reinterpreted what this means. It's not a narrow moralism, church. It's a heart posture toward the neighbor. The divine composition of God's law on our hearts will reflect readiness for what is required for society to work in life, flourishing ways for everyone in the community. That's what this looks like. So, Great City, God continues. That's how God continues to forge something new in us. It's just that natural. It's just that simple. It's like breathing. It's as near as our next thought and as necessary as our next breath. But then he's going to, to form something else. Somebody say something else. He's going to form something else. Look at the first part of verse 34 here in Jeremiah 31. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Wow, really? From the least of them to the greatest. Here's the view of the neighbor again. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Something else is being formed in the midst of these dark days in Jerusalem. Here, Jeremiah anticipates that in time, all will come to know God. Wow. And the phrase does not define a theological study set. It's not a set of spiritual disciplines. It's not even a sort of emotional intimacy with God. Here, God is reflecting the human readiness to treasure a relationship with God that will form our attitudes and our actions and our lifestyle. It's our, this is about our internal recognition that our life pivots on a defining relationship with our Creator and thus provides a drastic alternative to a life pursued uh, in, in self-interest. 
The failure of ancient Jerusalem and our own social failure, Grace City, is that we live as if acquiring enough control and enough stuff and enough power will somehow make us safe and happy. And we, we, we can hear that this morning and say, yeah, that's not where I am, but it's where we go. It's our default. Such ways of thinking where even our neighbors are treated as disposable is always a violation of our covenant with God. And in our current crisis, in our world today, right here in Baltimore, in our own social media networks, it's our judgments that we hold on to at the expense of our growth in Christ. Let me say that again. We hold on to our judgments at the expense of our maturity in Christ. We are way too likely to regard others as throwaway items in the interest of our own opinions. We are way too likely to regard others as throwaway items in the interest of our own opinions. In this text, in this text, God's handwriting establishes a return back to other-centered relationships, both with God and with our neighbor. Thus, in Jeremiah 22, just a few chapters before this, here's what he writes about the knowledge of God. Here the poet, Jeremiah, can declare that attentiveness to the poor and needy is what constitutes, this is Jeremiah 22, verse 16. You see it at home on your screen. Attentiveness to the poor of needy is the definition. It's what constitutes genuine knowledge of God. To care for the neighbor is to know God. Amen? To care for the neighbor is to know God. And it's often in the darkest days when we, when we push this truth away or we grow into it. We can either push this truth away because it doesn't fit our, our, what we, where we want to go, or we can grow into it and, and take the risk of what that means to grow into other center relationships. In January of 1943, three months before he was arrested and subsequ subsequently killed by the Nazis, pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these very paradoxical words about Christian formation when times are dark. What gets formed by God? What's the something else that gets formed by God when times are dark, when times are, are, are desperate? And he wrote this. There remains for us only the very narrow way, often extremely difficult to find, of living, watch this, living every day as if it were our last. That's number one. Here's the paradox. And yet, he writes, at the same time, are you ready, Brendan? Number one, live every day as if it were our last. Tough to find, tough to do. At the same time, living in faith and responsibility. Somebody say responsibility. Living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. I love that. Live every day as if it's your last. Live responsibly for the great future. Do it at the same time. Wow. And then he says, it's not easy to be brave enough to do this and to keep that spirit alive, but it is imperative. And he was dead within the year at the hands of the Nazis. These words written in response to a dark and tragic moment in human history, they remain a bold challenge to us today, to followers of Christ today, don't they? To purpose to continually make room for God to write on our hearts. It will look like growth. It will look like maturity. You want to know what it looks like? In the, in the books, uh, the Narnia tales, the character Lucy um, meets the great lion, which is the Jesus character in the Narnia Tales by C.S. Lewis. And if you don't know this, just stay with me. You'll get it. But Lucy meets the great lion, the Christ figure, for the second time. I don't know what book it is, but I remember the event. Uh, 
and Lucy is a little girl, and she meets Aslan for the second time, and she says this as she greets him. Aslan, Jesus, Aslan, you're bigger than the last time. And he says, no, young one. The reason I'm bigger is because you've grown. I get bigger when you grow up. I get bigger as you grow in me. This is what writing on the hearts looks like. As we grow, guess who gets bigger? It's Jesus, our relationship with Christ. He gets bigger as we grow up in him. So he's going to forge something new. He's going to form something else. And here's the best news of all this morning, and this will lead us into communion. He's going to forget something old. He's going to forget something old. Look at verse 34 at the very end. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Somebody should applaud for that, right? That's pretty good news. That's good news for all of us. Now, I have heard, Grace City, I've heard people say, I'm going to forget. I will forgive, but I won't forget. You ever been there? Ever felt it? And I just want to tell you, church, that's really not on the menu here. Of course we don't forget. We have memories. This text says, so what? Say what you mean, and let's give up using that as some sort of smokescreen to not be truly forgiving, okay? Can we just let that go? Can we just raise your right hand, repeat after me? I will not say that anymore because it's useless. Just put your hand over, left hand over your right heart. I don't know, whatever. Notice here, church, that the text does not say that God forgets our sins. It says he will not remember them. Do you see the difference? Can you see the difference? To forget something is to have no memory of it. Obviously, an all-knowing God has a memory. He, he has a memory. But Grace said, don't miss this. It's not that he forgets it. It's rather that he refuses to call it to mind. He lets them go. And that's exactly what's involved in forgiveness on our part. It's a unilateral process, promise, a unilateral promise not to remind the person of the offense, not to dwell on it and keep it between us in our own mind. This is the imprint of Jesus that we're about to celebrate at the table. It's the imprint on our hearts. This is what he's written on our hearts. He's done this very thing for you and me. Put our sin behind him. Church, forgiveness is less an event than it is a language. Let me tell you what I mean. If you analyze the handwriting of God, you see this in him. This is his language, and it's exactly who he wants us to be, people who live forgiveness. It's a language and a lifestyle, and I use these terms interchangeably for effect. My life is lived in English, and language forms me, defines me in profound ways, and in the same way... A life lived in forgiveness, a, a way, a, it's a language and a way of thinking that deals with the flawed world we live in, the flawed person that I am. It's not an event to be decided piece by piece. It's an imprint that authenticates us as belonging to Jesus Christ. Less an event and more of a language. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who's one of my faves, observed this in, Observe, listen, he says, forgetting is the opposite of creating. Forgetting is the opposite of creating. In creating, you make something out of nothing. In forgetting, you make nothing out of something. In forgetting, you make nothing out of something. So choosing to forget hurt or injustice at the hands of another is like taking something and putting it behind your back. It still exists, but it is no longer between you. 
It's still, it's no longer between you. Grace City, in a world without forgiveness, we are locked in forever to old behaviors. Scores are kept. Books are balanced. Nothing is ever forgotten. But where divine forgiveness appears, the act of inexplicable generosity engraved on our hearts can break vicious cycles of resentment. In our current context, where, sat, where society is saturated by violence of one sort or another toward one another, it's not easy sitting here this morning to imagine how forgiveness and reconciliation and repair can come about. But clearly, clearly in this text, forgiveness initially depends on the more powerful in a relationship taking initiatives of restoration that will ensure the dignity and security of the less powerful. When you are in that role, it's time to put those things behind you and clear the way for relationship. Such costly human initiative church may take place, says Jeremiah in this text, because God has already written it on your heart. Our God, the ultimately powerful agent, takes exactly that same initiative, doesn't he, in the middle of our personal and societal brokenness to restore us to relationship with him and to one another. Who are we to do less? Let's mirror God. Well, as the worship team comes up and we prepare for the, the Lord's table, I want to say this to you, church. Stay with me at home, too. Actually, I think we're letting home go, so there you go. Um, church, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we discover now the lengths to which God will go to write his law and his love on our hearts. It's all summed up in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a redeeming love that shows how bold and selfless God's love can be. It's a crucified love that reveals the depths of pain God will endure to reach us and to save us. And it is a resurrected love that cannot be overcome by any temporary trouble or brokenness. Not even death itself can conquer this love, right? It's an eternal love that knows no earthly or heavenly end. Church, we're not alone. We are never alone. For we have a God who comes to us in human form, dies for us, resurrects on our behalf, intervening in the course of history and refuses to let go. This is God's handwriting for you and me this morning. Let's stand and worship together, and then we'll see you next at the table of the Lord.